a stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Relentlessly Resilient, where real people share real-life experiences and the tools they've developed to move forward and live their best lives. I'm Jenny Taylor. And I'm Michelle Scharf. So excited to have Letitia Upton with us today. Letitia is a listener of our podcast. Which is always our favorite to have someone who's listened and learned along the way and then felt compelled to share their own journey. So Letitia, thank you for joining us. And in studio, no less, we're not on the phone. We're actually in person together, I know, which is so exciting because COVID hasn't allowed that for pretty much ever. So yeah. we're, we're glad to be in the room together. It's very exciting. Letitia, you and I have been talking for almost a year now. Yes. You have had such life experiences that there, there's a lot that we could talk about today. And um, I know that you refer to 2020 as the year of death. You had a lot of losses in your life. Yes. Four, yeah. four funerals, a dog funeral, fell oh off a wall goodness. and broke my knee and my tibia. and Oh, wow. Yeah. Just thing after thing after thing the year of 2020. So we had... We hate our 2018s. Yeah, you got a jump start. Yeah, and 2020. Remember, listeners, that's the year of the shutdown and of lockdown and, and lockdown. So you were doing funerals under hard circumstances Which I just as think well. Would be so hard but to today, not have you know that that closeness of friend and family that really carries you through. There's yeah. a lot to talk about today. Yeah, there, there's a lot. We are going to focus on one particular uh, storyline of your very hard and most difficult year, and that's the year of 2020. Do you want to introduce yourself and then just get started and and tell us a little bit about your story? Sure. So I am number five out of six kids. I had a fabulous mother, and I didn't meet my sweetheart, Tom, until I was 33, and he was 43, and Crazy enough, because neither of us drink, we met speed dating in a bar. Oh, wow. Okay, that's a good story. Yeah. yeah. So you're not drinking at the bar, you're just speed dating at the bar. Speed dating <laughs> I at love the it. bar. I, I didn't know I was going to get dating tips today. I, re- I refuse to go to bars for dating because I'm like, I don't want to be with anyone who would be in a bar. So. Right. Well, he. I looked at him and I said, what are you drinking? And he said, Coke. What are you drinking? And I said, water. And I went, Awesome. <laughs> Okay, so speed dating at the bar. Um, let tell us the rest. So, I had always thought, and being thirty four or thirty three, I had heard several stories of people that, oh my, I just knew the moment I met him. I I had a feeling, and I knew, and I thought they were making this up. They're full of crap, frankly. Yeah. And then I met Tom speed dating in that bar. I had fifteen other dates that night. For for eight minutes. For, I love it. And I went home and I remember talking to my mom and I sat there for a moment and I just said, there's a feeling about the accountant. And she went, the accountant with the big glasses? And I said, yes, he made me laugh. I just have a feeling about him. Oh, I love that. And 
I became one of those gooey people that, <laughs> oh my but it, gosh, it, it, I just knew. It's <laughs> one of those things that's hard to explain. I remember hearing the same thing, people that would just say, well, you, when you know, you just know. And they're like, well, how do you know? Well, you just know you felt the same way with John. Yeah. You guys were so young. You, yeah. When I met Brent, I remember it is. It's something. And I love that. I love yeah. that that's part of your story. Well, yeah. and I mean, by date six, I I said to him, so how do you think things are going? And he goes, well, I think it's pretty clear that this is destined by God and oh. that you're my soulmate. <laughs> and I'm like. Okay. Okay. Well, then let's skip to the chase. <laughs> That's so, where we're going. So how long ago was this? Because obviously today we're talking about that horrible, awful year of death 2020. How long before 2020 was this meeting? I met him in 2006. Okay. He proposed. So we met September of 2006. He proposed February 17th. He wanted to propose on Valentine's Day, but the w- ring wasn't ready yet. Oh, shoot. Close enough. 17 counts. Close enough. And oh, he was just my dream guy. I tell you, all the things that you hope guys say and, you know, all the sweet stuff you hope they'll do, he did. Yeah. He, he was the answer to all of my prayers. He was wonderful. He was more of what I needed than I knew I needed. I love that. I think we could say that about our spouses yeah. as well. So it sounds like you had 14 years together. 14 tell years. Us, tell us maybe what that journey was like and, and what led to this awful year of death that comes up in 2020. Well, the journey, um, so we got married April of 2017. We got married on April the four, on April the 13th, on a Friday the 13th. <laughs> that's brave. That's but, brave. Tom's Tom's mom always said, well, we believe the 13th is lucky in our family. And that's because Tom was born on the 13th. And so it was a lucky day. And the dynamic. Yeah. And, you know, as newlyweds, of course, we you go through stuff and you learn how far you can push that person and how far they can push you and how far you should never push them ever again. Right. And you learn rather quickly. Yeah. I remember sitting out in my car going, holy cow, I didn't think he had that in him. Wow, I got him so mad. I am in trouble. (laughs) I love it. But, you know, you make up and anyway, we went through a lot actually in our marriage. We lost a house. We lived with for a while with his parents. Um, I was so anxious to start having kids because I was 34 and my time limit was very short but we went through four and a half years of infertility where goodness I had I had surgeries I had endometriosis really really badly um I said to my doctor at one point I said what if I hook electrodes up to your privates and shock you every 10 (laughs) seconds then you'll know how I feel and he goes I think we should get you some Xanax along with painkillers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, thank you. Um, and Tom was worried, and he looked at the doctor, and the doctor goes, no worries. I've heard it before. We're fine. <laughs> That's a tough road. We've talked about that yeah. with other guests, including you, Michelle, and infertility mm-hmm. in a marriage, particularly when you've maybe married a little later in life in terms of childbearing years. and. You don't necessarily have four or five years to try to figure out how to then have the baby. 
Right. And there was one point where we went in for this test. So we were doing IVF and we go in for him to have this test to make sure he can penetrate eggs and all of this. And the doctor's like, well, you scored 100, but we you would have scored higher if we had a higher score. And Tom's coming out of the appointment. And he is Mr. I am 100% man. I'm going to get that on my license plate. <laughs> and then all of a sudden he looks at me and he goes, I'm sorry, do you feel bad? All of my test scores are really high and you're scoring really poorly on yours. Oh. <laughs> and I'm like, well, okay, three years ago this would have been a problem. Now I'm just really glad we have one part of the system working really well. Right. Yeah. So I finally got pregnant with IVF. Oh, that's wonderful. And it was a miracle, absolute miracle. And they were, uh, it turned out that once they transferred those two embryos, they called up later and said all the other embryos have stopped developing and stopped growing. So this was our only shot. So this was it. This was it. And it worked. And we had twin boys. And my husband was so excited. He wanted boys. He loved his boys. And so we get to where the boys are about three, and it's 2015, 16, and Tom got sick with the boys. They all got a really bad cold or flu. It was December, kind of the time. Went in, got them on antibiotics. The boys got better. Tom didn't. And... um I was concerned, and after it had been, you know, he had finished the whole course of medicine, he didn't get better. So I took him back in. They they wanted to just try another course of antibiotics, and I said, please x-ray his chest. I just feel something is wrong in his chest. And so they said, okay, we'll x-ray his lungs. That night, he came home, and he coughed so hard, he passed out. Oh, my goodness. And that terrified me because it took me about 35 seconds to wake him up. When you've got someone passed out, 35 seconds is like 25 minutes. That's a long time. Yeah. And um, the next morning, the radiologist called and said, I've been looking at your x-rays, and... I need you to either call the U of U and see if you can get in for a CAT scan, 911, or go to the emergency room right now and have a CAT scan. What was going on? Um, He saw a mass in Tom's left lung and inclusions in the right lung. Inclusion being other spots in the lung. Wow. Wow. So what you thought had just been the the colder flu bug the family was passing around turned out to be something much much more, more, more significant. And so we got to the U of U, got the CAT scan, and they call us within the next day or two, and they say we need you to go to to Huntsman. We've got a lung cancer oncologist up there ready to see you, and you need to have a better CAT scan, and a deeper look. So we do that, and at one point, I remember, I was just terrified. Terrified is the only 
word I can think of that describes how your mind, your soul, your entire body is just kind of humming with fear. So we went up to Huntsman and they did more scans and um, they wanted to do a biopsy of his lymph nodes um, because the lymph nodes along his chest core were all swollen and full. Well, they tried that, but if they put Tom under enough to where he was calm, he would stop breathing. So they didn't want to put him under too far. So they tried to put him under just lightly, but he fought with them. He fought really hard. And some a procedure that was supposed to take 45 minutes all of a sudden is three hours in. And when he finally came out of it, he looked kind of rough. Come to find out, Tom was a big guy. He was 6'4". He was very broad. He was a big guy. Yeah. And it apparently took several nurses and orderlies or whatever to hold him down so that they could get any kind of a biopsy. And they had to go through his nose. And that biopsy... It's really an uncomfortable procedure. Right. I, I mean, yeah. Yeah. He had bit through the camera that was going down his throat and broke it. So then they had to go through his nose because he was fighting them too much. Wow. So he comes out and the doctor's like, well, let's put it this way. Aren't you glad he doesn't drink? Because he'd be one mean drunk. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, good. Not Bonuses sure I'm ready for that joke way. right now. <laughs> so we get him home and they call us and they tell us, we couldn't get a deep enough biopsy. We need to do another one. Oh, no. They send him in. But this one, they just numbed a spot and went directly into his lung and grabbed a part of that mass. After, and I'm sure you remember, Michelle, waiting for the test results for them to tell you what is the actual diagnosis is like eons of time. It takes forever, and you're waiting for this shoe to drop on your head. Finally, we get the diagnosis that he is in stage four lung cancer, non-small cell. Oh, my goodness. And there's not a lot they can do. It's interesting. You know, I don't think a lot of people really understand that lung cancer is pretty big and prevalent, even in Utah, even though we don't have a high smoking population and oftentimes it's not related to smoking. Tom's doctor said it was due to radon, mm -hmm. which is a natural, colorless, odorless gas that happens, seeps up from the ground. If you go to radonutah.gov, you can mm -hmm. get tests, kits there to have your home tested. And it's not really that expensive to have a evacuation system put on your home to suck out the radon air and get it out of your house. So that's just something he was never aware of. Maybe as a child never growing up or somewhere in his life where he lived, there had been that exposure. Right. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Right. That's a good PSA for us. That is. Let's put some links to that. Yeah. Radon.utah.gov. So, so this I is, believe, yeah. what year was the diagnosis? So he was diagnosed, let's see if the boys were three. 16, 2016. 
Mm-hmm. So you had almost 10 years of marriage before that that just felt like the ups and downs of marriage and life and infertility and childbearing and everything else that is not necessarily easy. But it's but, life. But it's life. And then you've got, like you said, the shoe drops in 2016. Right. Yeah. So he started on what is called a immune therapy. And immune therapy has worked wonderful for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately for Tom, it didn't. And after about a month on immune therapy, he could hardly breathe. He was insistent on still going to work. The doctor said to him, you've got about a year, maybe. And so you're going to want to quit your job and just spend time with your family. That offended Tom. Tom was like, I'm not going to quit my job and leave my wife and kids with a ton of medical bills. What kind of a man does that? So he'd been going to work. And one day I watched him try and go from his car to the mailbox. And he had to stop twice to try and catch his breath. And he had been on oxygen. And I called up the doctor and I said, something's wrong. I don't know what. He can't breathe. And I told them what was concerning me, and they said, take him to the ER right now. And I had to call him from work and say, come home. I'm going to take you to the ER. The whole time he's going, this is ridiculous. They're just going to say you have lung cancer, and we know that. And I'm like, will you just trust me? And let's go to the ER. We get there. And they do a scan, and they come back and they say, well, we know why you're uncomfortable. You have over three liters of fluid in your pericardium sac, which surrounds your lungs and your heart. There's so much fluid in your chest, it has pushed your heart to the wrong side of your chest. And your lungs are And what in the world caused that? I'm not familiar enough with... Was that related to the lung cancer? Is that completely just horrible, awful luck? The immune therapy... Instead of his body fighting the cancer, it it filled up with fluid. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So a complication from an attempted treatment. Right. Oh, that's terrible. So they had to do a surgery, go and put a drain into his lungs and drain fluid. And we were emptying that drain for about three months. Oh, my goodness. So from bad to worse... Meanwhile, yeah. you've got two little three-year-old boys, which we've had three-year-old boys before one at a time, and that is a full-time job. And twins have a combined brain that becomes like Yeah, you're triplets. scaring me. That's enough. I, yeah, stop, stop. I just had my eight and six, well, I guess it's nine and six-year-old grandson over at my house this weekend, and those boys fight like mad dogs. Oh, and like you said, the I, energy of I the two makes it far more than one plus one. Right. I can't imagine two three-year-olds because... That's just insanity. It is a lot. Oh, and when they're getting along and it's nice and quiet and they're not fighting. That's when you should worry the most. They're destroying something. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That's the biggest worry. Yeah, that's so crazy. We have to take a break. We're going to take a break and we'll be right back. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. 
Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. back. Letitia, I remember those moments. All the tests, waiting for tests to return, conversations in ER rooms with doctors. You know, you have your cancer doctors, and so you're used to, like, they put you on a program, basically, so it's right. pretty unexpected experience. But when you go into the ER and they find something new, it's like a whole nother level. I remember one time going in and the doctor coming in and telling my husband it's just so unfair that the good men die. You know, why couldn't it be the drug addict? And and he had nothing positive to tell us. He just came in to apologize and, and express his condolences to both of us. Oh, my so goodness. Those are hard. You know, you're talking about it like it's an experience or whatever, the experience of the lungs filling it, and that's a medical but there's also that other edge where, where the medical providers are looking at you and you just see it in, in their eyes. Yeah. You see the death sentence. You know it's coming. And it's it's a little unnerving. Oh, it's very unnerving. But this wasn't the worst one. So this one wasn't as unnerving. Well, I at the time, of course, I was unnerved and terrified because, okay, so this was supposed to be the one that's supposed to help him continue to live. Right. And now it's not working. And they stopped all of the treatments. And now we're just focusing on getting fluid out of his lungs. So while we're focusing on getting fluid out of his lungs, his cancer is still growing. Right. And, you know, Tom and I had talked. And because our boys were so little, we worked to kind of not have this be a scary thing. We worked Mm -hmm. on kind of pretending like everything's okay, everything's normal. And luckily, Tom had kind of, whenever I needed a break from my boys, because I'm trying to make dinner, what have you, and they're nuts, Tom would take them and sit on his recliner, one on each side, and he would either read to them or they would watch how it's made on Mm. YouTube Mm -hmm. or something like that. And they loved it. So because he was sitting in his recliner, relaxing more, they would just go and sit with dad and spent so much time on his lap. It is it's one of my favorite memories is those boys just hanging with dad. Yeah. Hanging with dad. So tell me, I both of you have lost a husband to cancer in that journey. I haven't lived that closely with it. I've had a stepsister that we lost to breast cancer, but she lived out of state and I wasn't as closely involved until the end. You said the diagnosis came in 2016. We know you started off with 2020 as the year of death. So 
You've got three more years of this. Can you kind of tell us that journey that takes us up to the time when you actually lost him and then maybe some of those lessons learned as, right. as you get not only to the, the the death but the journey toward that? Because like you said, Michelle, both of you throughout the treatment with your husbands, you're you're facing a death sentence and it's just a matter of time. And And there's moments where, and I don't know if you had this, I had times where I kept telling myself, he's going to be fine. He's going to be fine. He's going to live. It's mm-hmm. going to work out. He'll be fine. And then the doctor, I said, asked the doctor one time, so when will he go into remission? And the doctor said, he will never go yeah. into remission. We're just trying to keep him as comfortable and able to do life for while he's here. That was a devastating moment to me yeah yeah to have now, it we be had so a direct really good doctor up at huntsman and he set us down and he said what have you been told and um i won't go go into the whole story but basically he came back he, he excused himself out of the room came back and he said okay here's the deal you have without any treatment about six months to a year to live we can try to extend that but i can't really give you a timeline and that was the first person that hadn't been telling us 10 or 15 years. Are you kidding? So, so that was the moment of a harsh reality, that that big hit. But he was really good in the way he sat us down, explained the cancer, explained why there's no treatment for it. Yeah, my husband had prostate cancer, but it had metastasized into his bones. And, um, and so that was, you know, a little bit different scenario. There, there was no treatment. We were beyond treating the cancer. Right. And, um, it's a hard, it's a, it's a really hard thing to accept. And yes, my husband was invincible. He told us that all the time. And I watched my husband heal himself. He cut off his thumb almost completely off and wrapped it in electrical Mm. tape and then Three days later, would unwrap it, and you could barely see a scar from where he'd sliced it open. And you know, I this man had been carbon monoxide poisoned. Like I could list hundreds of things where it's like near misses, near misses. You know, and um, he had us convinced he was invincible. So when the doctors told us that, there was the part of denial, and I think that that's also the part of. Uh, reasoning and rationalizing something that you've been told, right? And kind of the bargaining piece. Oh, yeah. Where you're like, uh, they haven't met my husband yet. Like, he's going to be the first. Yeah, these diagnoses won't apply to us. Us, yeah. Yeah. Well, and me, I was like, oh, I, I have enough faith. Right. But then I realized... Do I have enough faith to be okay if he doesn't live? And I think that's where faith and resilience really intersect because yeah. I'm I'm a, a person of faith as well and I find hope in God having a hand in my life. But that's one of the greatest lessons I think I've learned in, in my resilience journey is that faith doesn't mean magic wand fixes everything. No. Faith is being able to have that acceptance that the plan doesn't really unfold the way you want it, which I think is true for all of us, cancer mm-hmm. or not, death or not. I don't know a single person whose life actually looks like they thought it would when they were 20. And, and when you bring your faith into that, I think it's a beautiful way to have some peace of mind. 
but it doesn't just magically make everything easy. I love no. the line, life is what happens while you're busy making other plans. Exactly. So we all... And plans are great. We yeah. all visualize and we all build on hopes and dreams and goals and wishes and all kinds of things, right? And we set our sights out there, but then life has a way of of bringing either obstacles or opportunities. You can look at them either way. Yeah. And sometimes they they just put you on a completely different journey. To me, all of the experiences I have had, to me, the entire purpose of why we are here is to learn and grow. Oh, absolutely. And every experience, and mind you, my caveat, I sound like I've got it all down, mm-hmm. but that's because I'm here today and that's what I'm supposed to sound like. But the truth is there are days that I still struggle, but I used to believe that, you know, has God forgotten me? Why mm-hmm. am I going through this? Does he not love me enough? And I realized all of the trials that I have been through before this moment mm-hmm. We're helping to prepare me so that I can survive this moment and the next thing coming. Absolutely. And one of the things that I think is an aid to seeing or having stronger resiliency is the seeing the precious miracle moments of I had an incredible neighborhood as soon as they heard that. Tom was facing cancer and going to die. Um, People donated. I had been, I had decided I was going to build this rock wall. I had rebar. I had dug it out. And then Tom got sick and it was rainy and most of the dirt washed down the hill and it was a mess. And they got together and one day a truckload of boulders shows up. Oh, wow. And then the next day, A neighbor comes with a backhoe and I have a beautiful rock wall Mm -hmm. holding everything. It will never move. Mm -hmm. And it took that off of my mind. Yeah. What a beautiful, wonderful thing. And I think it's vital to our resilience to see these miracle moments in our life. Absolutely. The fact that when... I'm calling and going to take Tom up to the ER because he can't breathe. I happen to have a neighbor who said, hey, do your boys want to come and play? Mm-hmm. You know, these moments that help. Yeah. So after the whole fluid thing, they did a DNA test of his cancer. And I find this absolutely incredible that there are people out there who study how cancer mutates, and what mutations are what. The highest majority of his mutations were something called BRAF, B-R-A-F. It's kind of a skin cancer, which is weird to have skin cancer in his lungs, but that's what it was. And they were just starting this test um, to test this medication that had worked well with skin cancer, and they were doing a trial to see if they could open it up for other cancers in other locations of the body, like in the lungs or in the brain, for high counts of BRAF. 
So luckily he got on this trial. And the great thing about this medication is it's mailed to you. It shows up at your door and it's pills that you keep in the fridge and take. And that gave us another year for Tom. That's awesome. Yeah. He actually got to where he could go off of oxygen. Oh, that's amazing. And he was doing... So so was it actually shrinking the cells? Yes. It shrunk the cells. His lymph nodes went down to normal size. Mm -hmm. And the... When they first found the spot, the mass in his left lung, it was about the size of a fist. Mm -hmm. Wow. And so it had gone down by... To the about the size of a walnut. Wow! So it was doing incredible. So did he have a reasonable quality of life that final year or so? What was that? Well, not the final year. This was your. So this is in the middle. So diagnosis, then some treatment to at least a year of yeah decent quality of life. Would you say? Right. Oh yeah, he was going to work. He was. Oh, that's great. I mean, he was filling. He went to work until I would say three to six months before he died. Okay. And then that's when it kind of turned. Right. And, and and like another thing that he had worked for the Utah State Board of Ed for 15 years. And there was, you know, people in charge changed and they kind of came in with the attitude of we want to clean out all the old. And because Tom had been there 15 years, they were trying to they downgraded his title and his pay and things like that to try and get him to quit. And. He had been applying for other jobs, and at one point he said, I don't understand this. Why can't I get another job? And I said, honey, this is when you have to have faith and believe that you will get the job you're supposed to have when you're supposed to have it. And he did. He got this job with DNR, Department of National Resor- um, Natural. Natural Resources, mm-hmm. and he was working in the um, Water Rights Division, and... Within a few, within two weeks of him being at this new job, his supervisor, the state engineer, put his pay up to where it was before all the cancer started. He told me, your husband is an answer to prayer. And we had all these arguments and tension in the water rights division. And within two weeks, he calmed everybody down and everything's just lovely. And the state engineer had also had cancer. And so he had an added empathy to that. Right. So you make it through the diagnosis. You make it through one year with at least some treatment and and relief in a sense. You get the new job. You're moving into. But the, the entire time, you know, this is fatal. Right. No one's ever come back and said, hey, now that he's this treatments worked well, we're giving him another decade anticipation no. you you knew the end was just a matter of time right we're going to take another break and come back and then have you walk us through that year of death and the lessons learned as we speak of the pillars of resilience we'll be right back We're back. Letitia, take us through um, the final journey to, to the loss of your husband in that year of death. And then, of course, we always want to focus on what these great lessons that sometimes life's hardest trials bring us, particularly as related to resiliency. 
Right. So after that, BRAF was working really well. All of a sudden, one day, and it seemed to always happen around March or April, when I would notice something. I looked at him. He was getting into the shower, and some, in my viewpoint, his chest was bulging weird on one side. And he couldn't see it. When I got him into the doctor, she couldn't see it. But she said, and mind you, yes, I was in denial, hoping he will just live through all of this, Mm -hmm. where in the back of my mind, I also knew knew he just knew Mm -hmm. I am an optimist, which I haven't felt actually the last couple of years, but I am an optimist. Mm -hmm. And he was a pessimist. And I just personal note, I think all optimists like to say they're realists, air quotes, Mm -hmm. realists. Mm -hmm. No, they're pessimists anyway. And so he just knew and he had been planning. He had been putting things in place that he never talked to me about, that he never explained to me. And that was fine. I would just, you know, I was trying to raise kids and. You know, keep my boys from thinking dad's dying. And anyway, after I noticed his chest bulging, the doctor said, I told the doctor she needs to talk positively because I couldn't take all of her death talk. Mm -hmm. And so she worked on it Mm -hmm. to help me. But her and Tom would look at each other and kind of know. She said, well, let's just check everything and let's do a full body MRI and see where we are. And his his lung cancer had started to grow again, even though he was on the BRAF, and he had two tumors in the cerebellum of his brain. Oh, no. And so we talked to radiologists, and they had another chemo that they wanted to try with Tom because he did so well on the BRAF. It was an injection, and for six weeks, we went to the Huntsman location in Farmington, And he had injections for weeks, and I would sit by him, and I would do Legos or crochet, what have you. And the radiologists had figured out that they were going to, because it was a study, to see if they did radiation streams from several different locations around his head to hit and accumulate in those two spots. Mm -hmm. And... That worked out really well. The tumors shrank in the brain and went away. And his lung cancer calmed down. And they said just to keep things going, they put him back on the BRAF medication after the injections. And it was going really well. And then that got us through Christmas. Then in January, one day he woke up and he was super dizzy. And he's like, I can't work. I don't, something's wrong. So we take him up to Huntsman and he was having double vision. So he put something on like an eye patch and we got up to Huntsman and they did a scan, but we got up there in the later afternoon. Mm -hmm. So they said, what we're going to do is we're just going to check you in. Have you stay here overnight? And then we'll have a really good, detailed CAT scan done tomorrow. And that was a Thursday. So he stayed overnight. 
I went home and had the boy sleep with me because I slept just fine for 33 years without him. Mm -hmm. And then, like within six months of sleeping with him there, I cannot sleep without that man. Right. And I don't know when I will ever sleep again. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So we go in and I go in Friday and they're like, okay, we're just waiting for this doctor to come and this doctor to come. And all of a sudden I realize there are seven specialists in the room and nurses and students and a social worker had come in with little bags of things to distract the boys while they had this talk with me. Tom had developed and I wish I could remember the name, but I can't. When someone you love dies, your brain goes away. He had leptomeningeal something. And we were not sure what it was. But after talking to the doctors, the radiologist said, well, I, I could hit the spot on his lumbar spine because he had a spot on his spine. But it would be like playing whack-a-mole. Right. And not worth it. Because... The cancer was actually floating in his brain fluid. It was not in his brain. His lungs were fine. The lung cancer was not growing, but the cancer was floating in his brain fluid. And Mm -hmm. so as the brain fluid goes down in the spine, it had created this spot on his lumbar. So after talking to the doctors, I'm like, well, what if, you know, is there a way to do chemo? To the fluid. And they said, well, yes, it's only ever been done 25 times, 24, but we can try it. And so after talking and talking with Tom and the doctors, they decided to put this port in his head. And they shot the spot with on his lumbar spine with radiation. And then they started this process. And... As we're going in, Tom is like, why are we even bothering? And I said, ask your doctor why we're bothering. And we go into his doctor and she said, first off, Tom, I love what your body does with any medication I give it. Your body takes the medication and kills the cancer. It is beautiful. Mm -hmm. Second of all, you are my only lung cancer patient that can still walk into your appointments. Mm. You are my only lung cancer patient that is not on oxygen. You are my only lung cancer patient that has done as well as you have done. Because mm-hmm. it's been almost three years now. Right. And he's actually, at this point, overall improved right. from where he was. Yeah. Right. Overall improved. So they started this process where they would draw out brain fluid from the port in his head and then put in chemo and they started that around march and we did that until may and one day he stopped making sense he stopped talking he was saying all kinds of weird things and i called his doctor i called the nurse and they said it's time to stop the the chemo in Mm -hmm. the brain And so we stopped that. And all of a sudden, after like a week of no chemo, he came back. And I was like, oh, my gosh, 
you going freaked me out, buddy. And I remember when we were first told about this, I went, we got home, I got the boys to bed, got Tom to bed, and then I went out and I sat on my rock wall and I just sobbed. I started a prayer and all I could say was, Father. And then I sat there and sobbed for a couple of hours. But while I was sitting there communing with the Lord, I realized that the other option is not having a life, not having had Tom, not having had the boys, not having had the experiences of love and joy and adoration. And if it came down to what I Come to earth again. Would I do this all over again? Yes, Mm -hmm. I would. I would for the experience of having had that soulmate in my life for however long it would be, whether short or long, I got to have Tom. And that kind of was a turning point, one of the many turning points Mm -hmm. and so that got us until March of 2020 when he was having double vision and he was having a really hard time and over this time with the brain cancer in his fluid he had lost It had paralyzed half of his larynx, Mm -hmm. so he had a really hard time talking. Anyway, it was, I think it was March 14th. We went in, and they said the brain cancer has now gone in and is throughout his brain. And we just laid there in acute care up at Huntsman, and I just sobbed all day. Because I knew this was it. Mm-hmm. And he did go now, through. This is like March 14th of 2020. So we just, everything, everything is, shut down. The world shut, has shut down. down. The world has <laughs> shut down. And after this appointment, they had then closed Huntsman. And so when he went in, he decided to do 10 days of full brain radiation. And I, I believe he did it for me. Mm-hmm. Because he knew he was dying. He had known for a while. And I believe he did it to show me I am doing everything I can. Yeah. So he did the 10 days of radiation, lots of nausea. Luckily, he had a very high pain threshold. So if he was in severe pain, he would take a Tylenol. And he didn't ever need... A lot of painkillers until after this 10 days. Mm-hmm. But then um, a Tylenol with codeine, would he was fine. As things were shutting down and this latest diagnosis had come in, I had a friend one day. Her name is Allison. She is beautiful. She helped me in a way that she could. That to her seemed simple, but to me was huge. 
I am a very, I'm a people person and I'm a very physical people person. I love hugs. Anyway, she was walking by one afternoon with her dog and she said, how can I help you? And I said, I need a hug. And she said, well, screw COVID. And she gave me a hug. And for the next three months, she came by every night and gave me a hug. Mm. And there are so many beautiful, wonderful people in this world that are going through tough times. And if we work together, if when we see someone having a hard time, even if, I mean, when I was pregnant, I I wasn't a beautiful pregnant. When I hit um, 30 weeks, I got preeclampsia and I gained over 100 pounds of just fluid. Mm-hmm. It was oh, miserable. That so and miserable. That's, that's a whole other podcast. Mm-hmm. But... Because of that, whenever I see a pregnant woman, I let her know she's adorable. Mm -hmm. She's not as big as she thinks she is. Mm -hmm. And she is adorable because Mm -hmm. I remember that's a hard time. Anyway, so this beautiful friend is coming, giving me hugs. And we had nurses, wonderful Huntsman home care nurses that had been coming for about a year and a half. And... One day, Tom, the nurse came, and his heart was doing strange things. And we sat down. We went over all of his medications. And she said, it's time for us to stop all of the medications. Mm -hmm. And we are going from palliative care to hospice care. And... By this time, my boys are six, and so we had called him up, and we had been talking about dad has cancer, dad's fighting cancer. And so we called him up, and we told him, you know how daddy's been fighting cancer? And they're like, yeah. And I said, now daddy is dying from cancer, and he needs extra hugs, he needs extra attention, and you need to spend a lot of time with your dad. And they were crying. I was crying. I walked the nurse out. Now, I had only ever seen Tom cry or tear up once or twice in our entire marriage. He was raised in the old school, men don't cry. I come in from talking to the nurse, and he is sitting in his recliner with his boys sobbing. Tears dripping off of his chin, sobbing. And I said, honey, are you afraid? Are you, what's going on? And he looked at me and he said, I'm just afraid I haven't done enough to take care of you and the boys when I'm gone. He loved me so much he was worried about me. As he was doing okay, and I think that was April through through part of May where he was on the hospice care and he had this walker, and all I could think to do was to dig in my garden. And I dug out juniper bushes and I 
put bricks in and leveled my terrace the back. I, I was kind of losing my nut. And he would just go and sit and watch me work. And his amazing work had let him retire and everything. He bought out early retirement, so he retired with 30 years with the state. And, you know, everything's shutting down. It's kind of crazy to think about. Then one day, it was about May 19th, 20th, he started to throw up. And he was throwing up. It was horrible. Come to find out he was bleeding internally somewhere. They didn't know. And the nurse came back and we helped get him comfortable and got some anti-nausea medicine in there. And we said, well, we think you're bleeding internally. What do you want to do? We need you to go to the hospital right now. And he goes, no, I'm not going. I'm not going anymore. And he had asked me about two weeks before, right around our anniversary, how long do I have to stay here? And I told him, honey, you have done way more than I could have ever asked of you. You can go when you're ready. So after they found out he had been bleeding internally, they told me he has about 15 to 20 hours to live. So um, it kind of started this vigil where his dad and his brothers came up. His dad was dying from prostate cancer at Mm. the time. And it was kind of, I have this super sad but loving picture of his brother and his nephew brought his dad up in his wheelchair to the house. Tom couldn't get out of bed. His dad couldn't get out of the wheelchair, but the room wasn't situated for him to get close. So he and Tom just stuck their feet out and they tapped toes. Mm. And because Tom couldn't talk loud because of his larynx and Tom's dad couldn't hear, (laughs) they just kind of waved at each other, tapped toes Mm. and kind of said a goodbye. And so for that whole next week, I learned what mourning with those that mourn really meant because at different days I would have different people come and I was giving him medication to keep his pain down, to keep his anxiety kind of under control Mm -hmm. and um, different people, I was giving it to him every hour on the hour and so different people would come and just sit with me and help me remember it's been an hour and I I had a beautiful friend Brooke who spent one night with me and we did our nails together other nights people would come in halves, half of it would be Tom's sister and half would be um, another neighbor just wonderful people who sat with me through that time. So how many days from the time that he got the diagnosis of the internal bleeding to to when he passed? He internal bleeding was on Monday and he didn't pass until Saturday afternoon. So that's a long week. A very long week and I was not sleeping. Yeah. And I was spending all of my time sitting with Tom. Was he lucid? Was he conscious? 
No. No. And this is going to sound terrible, but after about Thursday, he was no longer my husband. Right. He couldn't move himself. He couldn't talk. He was this strange ghoul. And I was ready for him to go. And it kind of changed my whole viewpoint on the, you know, people who, what's the controversy? People with the... The right to end life. Right. Mm -hmm. That. All of a sudden I realized, now I see why. Yeah, we've talked about that before. Yeah. My husband and I uh, testified for it when it it came up uh, the year that he was dying and and they tabled it and... You know, I think it's very misunderstood. And unless you are dealing with someone, I think that for us as humans to be able to have choice in our passing. Right. um, It's the way I advocated for women in their births, that they have choice in in their birth options, whether that's to have it natural, vaginal, cesarean, have an epidural, whatever. People are empowered when they have the ability to make a choice. Right. 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 I I will say it was a very interesting learning experience, too, to watch him because I think he was ready to go. And there was one day my sister-in-law said, I think spirits are sticky Mm -hmm. because there were times where Tom would lift up his arm and he'd look at his arm like, oh, darn it, the body's still coming with (laughs) me. And then he would sit up and then look at himself, oh, and then lay back down. It's That's like really they are actually trying to leave their body, but right? For some reason, they can't separate the spirit out of their their body, right? We had issues with that. My husband would lunge out of bed, and we it would require all my kids and I to get, lift him up and get him back into bed. And wow, and he had bone cancer. It, you know, we were concerned about him breaking a bone. Not that he'd have a broken bone, but the, the pain, the injury. Right, just, right. Just make the, it worse. It just makes everything worse, right? The yeah. complications of it all. So, so this is interesting to see. You know, I came into this conversation thinking um, we're going to talk about how your husband died and then the resilience came or your mm-hmm. husband died and then the grief came and your husband died and then the mourning came. When in reality, you had three or four years and Michelle, you too, for your cancer journey where you're learning to mourn and grieve along the way. You're learning how to be resilient with people around you, supporting you and being there for you. And it, it, I think that's something that's maybe misunderstood in our culture, mm-hmm. that it's not just death, funerals, some of those bigger milestones that are so visible from the outside. But I've heard a lot of resilience in you in telling this journey leaning up to that last week of your husband's life, the, from diagnosis to hope because something's working to, oh, my gosh, it's not really working and and trying. And I see, you know, we talk about those five pillars and and how you really bring in that resilience journey in the middle of the journey. And I commend you for that because I think that, and you know, we could do a whole other conversation about, yeah. okay, then he died and then what? But we've been in this journey of of that cancer journey and the diagnosis and, and his failing physical body. And I think it learning. would have been really challenging for me. We didn't have any hope and, and no um, backing down of the cancer. He did a little bit of treatment, didn't work really well. He did, he opted to stop it. I supported him in that for quality of life reasons. I think if I would have had a husband that was on these medications and they were shrinking <laughs> cancers, I think I would have really convinced myself that they've got it wrong and that there's right. a way around this. The, and that this we're is going to be over soon and right. we're going to beat it. We're, we're going to somehow 
Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, that, and that's part of, I think, in resilience, at least I found, like you said, you're here today and today you're great and you're out of bed and, and you can tell a story of resilience and, and another day you might be a puddle on the floor. And I think that's also part of resilience yeah. is the give and take. You're not not resilient if you have hard days or hard moments. Well, that's part of being resilient right. is going through the difficulty and coming out on the other side knowing you're going to go through it yeah. again. Well, and learning, too, that as a continual caregiver for years that I need to do that part of resiliency of self-care. Right. I was doing it a little bit during all of this, but... But your focus was him. Absolutely. My focus was him. But once he, you know, I, I had personally been praying that he goes and it reached a point and I think that I had to reach that point of I need him to, to go, go. Mm-hmm. so that I I so relate to this because where he is I hate this ghoul in my bed right and he's not my husband poor at the mortuary the you know the guy said how does he look and I said he looks like Terrible. a weird little man and <laughs> he said how can I help and I'm like there's nothing you can do cancer right. ate my husband yeah. right and this is what we have right you know, my, my kids called my husband the zombie yeah. towards the end. Sounds like the same. It, it's the same kind of, I, when when you're using these terms, I'm like, oh my gosh. Our, and you can't. Our backstory is very similar. Right. Th- those last few days. Mine lasted 10 days and he was uh, death gurgling the whole time and that oh. created well so challenges in itself. One of Tom's eyes had shifted down because of the brain cancer and he had lost muscle strength in his eyelids, so he was one eye always open, staring at us, ghoul. Just truly haunting. Really haunting. Yeah. So let's hear, you, you. he makes it to Saturday. I would love to know some of the maybe deepest lessons of resilience that you had discovered by the time he died. Because again, I think sometimes we think, oh, that starts after. after. But what, what were some of those key takeaways of resiliency that... Maybe you had reached by the time he was finally able to leave that destroyed body. Right. So one of the things my mom always used to say when, and I remember her saying this when I was so young, go have a meeting with you, yourself, and I, and Mm. figure out what's happening up there. Because your actions are saying there's crazy town happening. (laughs) So... And I have often said, me, myself, and I, we're going to go and have a meeting and figure out. Well, over this week, people coming and saying their final goodbyes, I realized that one of the things Tom needed to know was that I will be okay. And even though after he went, there's a moment where I was relieved because he was out of that sickly body that could not do anything anymore. I was relieved because the box of shoes of cancer that sits above your head and periodically drops one out and clonks you was gone. But I also knew I was picking up a new weight, but I could because of everything I had been through. And it's hard to describe because you are devastated. You're sobbing, overwhelmed, 
with so much emotions. But I knew I could continue on because Tom expects me to, because my boys need me to. And because the last three or four years you had learned that you could. I and could. I think that's that's part of that journey where everyone, I'm, I'm sure you've all, you've both had people say to you, oh, I could never do that. Well, neither could I. <laughs> and yet when life demands it, you, you do. You can't. You just step up. And there up. is, as much as it's overwhelming and depressing to make the laundry list of horrible, awful things we've ever lived through in our lives, that list can also be very empowering. Like you mm-hmm. said, you at one moment you mentioned that previous experiences in your life had maybe helped prepare you for this horrible, awful experience. And and now this horrible, awful experience might make you better equipped for who knows what lies down the road. And I think that's a huge part of resilience, that recognition mm-hmm. that I can create some meaning and purpose, even if I think this is a horrible, awful thing. I don't have to love it and be Pollyanna happy about it, but you can get through these awful years. And I love that you mentioned you had kind of this almost ironic awareness of your own strength in the midst of the depth of your grief. Right. That this is horrible and awful, and I can do this. I think that's powerful. I didn't want to. I sure. still don't no, want to. No, none of it. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I still nobody do not want asked. to do this. Nobody asked right. if we Nobody to. asked we if are. we wanted to. But, but, but we get you to. can. But yeah. we get and, to. And you're capable of it. The last day, Saturday, I remember Saturday morning, I, I had a friend and she was trying to tell me, you know, just think about what a spiritual moment this is. All of these spirits coming to get him. I do not have that talent. I do not see spirits. I do not have whatever it is. I would love to see Tom again. I would love to feel him around. There have been two times since he passed where I knew he was with me. Mm-hmm. But I was not cluing into that part. I was able to lean on his shoulder and I took about a a two-hour nap. And then I whispered in his ear, Tommy, I'm going to go get your boy some food. I've got this. And I left the room. When I came back, he was gone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And... It's so interesting. Your story that, and mine are ready. very par- yeah. parallel. Yeah. But when my book would... is written, you, you'll have to read it and you'll be like, oh my like, gosh. This is my this story. Is, this is so crazy. It's a very similar, very similar right. ending. So to kind of just give a clue of the rest of 2020, because I called it the year of death. So this was May 23rd that he passed. We had a graveside service. We were able to have about 50 people there. And oh, it was wow. nice. And at the graveside service, my sweet father-in-law grabbed my hand and said, oh, honey, I wish it was me and not him. Mm-hmm. And I said, so do I. Yeah. <laughs> well, he passed away um, July 29th, 26th or 29th. I lose track. In June, I fell off of a wall, broke my knee, tore out my ACL, my NCL. Anyway, um, so he passed away in July. In August, my brother-in-law passed away. He had been struggling with schizophrenia for many years, and he took his life. Um, Never knew my sister and I were going to be grieving widows together. Mm -hmm. Um, In September... My brother-in-law's dog that I had taken to kind of help my sister because she couldn't deal with it 
died, and we had to bury her. And then Halloween was okay, but there had been that windstorm in September, and aunt and uncle came by November 6th. That uncle had died, and then in December I got COVID. And so it was just one One slam after after another. another. Yes. What a year. But would I change it? No, because as you learn and grow, Mm -hmm. as you get stronger and you're able to help others, like my mom, my mom always used to say, if we all put our troubles out on a line, you would take back yours and Mm -hmm. I would take back mine. Mm -hmm. This life and the things that happen in this life are geared to help us learn and grow in the ways that we need to learn and grow Mm -hmm. to be better by the time we're done. Absolutely. Yeah. So, Leticia, we've got to wrap up, but tell us what does resilience mean to you? Resilience means that even on those days when you have cried so hard and fallen asleep crying and you're just sure you're not going to wake up because the pain is so painful, you will die. You wake up and you're still alive and you keep going. Mm. You keep going on at moments when it feels like I cannot do this. That's when you call your SOS friends. You send them a text. And I prepped my SOS friends. I prepped them and said, when I say the word overwhelmed, I need you to be my cheerleader and tell me all the things I'm doing right. I've got them prepped and ready. You... Keep putting one foot in front of the other. Mm-hmm. I love that. And I love your story. And I really appreciate you coming in today and sharing it with us. A couple takeaways for me is that it's really about connection. You created your list of SOS friends. You had family. You had ward members that stepped up to help. And those little things didn't change the outcome. They weren't going to solve Tom's cancer. But they did help ease your burden and know that you were loved and that you could be taken care of and provided for if it wasn't your ability to do it, do it, that somebody could help ease those burdens. And I love that because I think more than anything, we live in a very social media world and we all think that we know everything that's going on in each other's life. But in reality, we really just don't. Even, even if somebody's sharing their story, I'm very open on social media and I have with my husband's story, but really the story and even when I write my book it's going to be maybe 25% of the story right there's just so many other parts of that story that belong to somebody else to tell and so I love your what you've shared with us today it's, it's really about connection well, it's you. really about relying on others and being able to to reach out and I think that that's really hard I think we see a lot of suicide happening right now and people are really yearning for connection to me i say and me personally i don't have a big media or Mm -hmm. i don't have a web page i sometimes share on facebook or instagram Mm -hmm. something with the boys but i cannot focus on that or on the news i focus on where i have control or what I can do and what I can do is my life, my little boys, 
and what I can help and your teach community, them. right? And and the value of putting the real instead of wasting so much time on our social media, it's so much better to invest in people, right? And be able to have people that not only you can show up for when they're they're in need, but also that you can ask them, "I need a hand. I need a friend. I need a listening ear." And I think that that is really important. I think it's such a great message. Thank you so much for yes. coming out today, for sharing your story. And thanks for sharing the story. Again, I'm still kind of pondering this, the story of the journey of resilience. It, it, it's it's not done. And even it's when your husband journey. died, it's not like it's done. But it's also not when the grieving began. So that's been insightful for me, having not, again, lived close to to cancer and a spouse like that. My heart breaks for both of you. Just, I know Michelle's story. So hearing Letitia's today, I did hear so many similarities and I'm walking it through and I'm thinking of my brother-in-law who would have just gone through this with his wife and just it awful, awful to have to grieve for months, if not years before I would think the traditional grieving starts. So thank you for that. It's been very humbling to hear this story and, and caused a lot of reflection of my own and love what you shared about resilience. I love um, that it's, it's going through it. It's not pretending you're not down or having a hard day, but just or getting up again. Or having the perfect Instagram photo. Sure. That's not it. No, no. Yeah. It's, it's continuing, continuing, continuing. So thank you. And thanks for reaching out as a listener. And we hope to our we listeners. Love this. Yes, we hope to the listeners listening today that maybe something Leticia has shared has reminded you of an experience you might share with us or a lesson you've learned through whatever life has thrown your way. And we would love to hear that. So Please, if you're listening, we'd love to connect with you. First of all, we'd love to connect with you through the podcast. Find us on your favorite podcast platform and like us, give a rating and a review and help us know how we can improve the show and then reach out to us. You can either direct message us on social media or send us an email at rrpodcast at ksl.com. Quick shout out to our amazing producer, Kellyanne Halverson, behind the microphone with all of the switchboard to keep sound and everything going. And we hope you all have enjoyed what you've heard today. And remember, whatever you do today, remember to be kind. You have no idea the struggles others are dealing with in their lives. Have a great day. Take care, everybody. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.